Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We will be spending a fair amount of time tonight in Matthew chapter 27. I'm going to start this evening by reading Matthew 27, 46. At the point of Jesus' death, Matthew records about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And then he translates that for us, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That quote is the very first verse of Psalm 22. Now, people have speculated about why Jesus quoted the very first line of Psalm 22. Some people say that there was a Jewish tradition whereby if you quoted the first line of a psalm, that was used to remind people of the entirety of that psalm. And that's a possibility. There are also people who say that on the cross, Jesus cited the whole psalm, but that Matthew only took the time to write down the first line of it because that's a reference to the whole thing. The fact that both Matthew and Mark record Jesus saying it and neither of them say anything about him reciting the whole rest of the psalm leads me to believe that all he said was this very first line. But this is a very, very messianic psalm. It's an obviously prophetic psalm on several different levels, as we're going to see tonight. And it is so messianic that it's going to describe several of the events that actually took place in the crucifixion of Jesus. So it is undeniably messianic. So then the debate becomes, well, then how much of it was personal to David? Or did he just simply mean it to be a prophetic messianic psalm? Or because it is so similar to so much of what we have already read and will read of David's writing where he talks about his own agonizing, how much of this psalm was David speaking first person about his own difficulties and then they just happened to coincide with Christ? I actually do believe that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the entirety of this psalm because of the large number of references that clearly have nothing to do with him. For instance, nobody ever pierced the hands and feet of David. And it's impossible to say, well, you know, his hands and feet were pierced in an allegorical, symbolic way. There's no way to make that connection. It's clearly a Christological connection. And in fact, that kind of uh, prophetic statement about piercing his hands and feet also ties into other prophets who predicted the same thing about Jesus. So 
So it's a very prophetic psalm. It's a very messianic psalm. And it is proof, it is evidence yet again of the veracity of the Bible because David wrote these things not really knowing exactly what he was talking about. And yet, these things all came true in a very real, very literal, very physical way. Jesus actually did accomplish everything that David's about to write about. And so I think that's the reason that Jesus quoted Eli Eli Lama Sabachthani. That's the reason that he quoted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that everybody would know, oh, let's go look at that psalm because that psalm actually prophetically verifies that Jesus was the Messiah to come. So I think Jesus was just handing out the clue, go read this psalm and you'll understand more about who I am, especially considering that the people around the cross at that point were doing the things that David said they were going to do, and the others watching it would understand that this is all verification of what David had already said a thousand years in advance. Jesus was going to experience. So, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. In other words, the groaning is going to continue. I have no choice, no option but to groan in agony, but I'm not groaning to be delivered. There's no deliverance in my groaning. I'm groaning because of what I'm going through. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but thou dost not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Those are the kind of verses that make you say, well, now wait, is that David? Because that sounds very first person, like the kind of stuff that David says about himself. Literally, that phrase means that there, there is no silence in me. In other words, I'm driven to this kind of groaning and crying out. By the way, the cry here can mean to shed tears, that kind of crying. But more likely, what it means is I call out the way that you would think of a town crier. And so I'm crying out in the day and you don't deliver me. If that's the case, then that is very messianic because Christ did in fact say, as Tom told us repeatedly last night at men's group, Jesus did say, your will, not mine. And so he wasn't looking for deliverance. He was looking to go through, to bear up under the agony of the cross because he foresaw the greater deliverance of his people. So verse 3, and I find this just wonderful. Uh, I think this is one of those moments where we can learn something really important about our own relationship with God. Because whether David is speaking exclusively about Christ here in the first two verses, or whether he is speaking first person and it applies to Christ, whichever way you divide it, the first two verses are troubled and groaning and crying and you don't seem to be answering me and I have no rest and there is no peace, there is no silence within me. Nevertheless, says verse 3, yet you are holy, O thou who art enthroned upon the praises of Israel. The contrast is huge. 
The contrast is, I'm in agony, I'm in difficulty, I'm going through trials right now, terrible trials, and you don't seem to be delivering me from these trials, but you're the holy one. You're the sovereign one. And whatever you do, by virtue of the fact that you are the holy sovereign one, whatever you do is right. And whatever you do ultimately redounds to your glory because you are the one who is enthroned upon the praises of Israel. You are the God of Israel. And what you do with Israel is ultimately right. And by the way, the Christological aspect of this is Christ did in fact come as the Messiah of Israel, as the deliverer of Israel. And so as the God who is enthroned on the praises of Israel, he did ultimately send the deliverer for Israel. So in fact, those praises to that God are completely appropriate because through Christ, he's delivering Israel. So I love the perspective of life is hard, life is difficult, my circumstances are bad, things are going really wrong and I'm in agony, but you, you're holy nevertheless. You're holy regardless. You're God on his throne doing whatever seems right to you. And if you can hold on to that perspective, even when you're going through the difficulties of life, it's very comforting. It helps you to get your perspective right. In you, says verse 4, in you our fathers trusted. Those would be the forefathers of Israel, reaching all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In thee, our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you did deliver them. That's a historic fact. David is just stating a truism now. He's saying, you brought us out of Egypt. You brought us to our land just exactly the way you said to Abraham that you were going to do. You have delivered us. And therefore, that seems to be David's confidence that deliverance is coming. Deliverance is going to happen because the God of Israel has been faithful to his people, and therefore he's going to deliver them again despite the bad circumstances of the moment. In thee our fathers trusted, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. To you they cried out, and they were delivered. In you they trusted. And they were not disappointed. Verse 6 then says, again, in contrast to you're the holy one. You're the sovereign one. You get to do whatever you want to do. And you have this great track record going. The history of Israel is that our forefathers trusted you and you cared for them repeatedly over and over again. You delivered them. They were not disappointed in you. But as for me, I am a worm and not a man. If you would, Tom, look up Job 25. You're going to read verses 4 to 6 for us. Just like David said, but for me, I'm a worm and not a man. The book of Job is going to go further. Bildab is going to say, I'm a maggot. Read it. How then can man be in the right before God? How then can man be in the right? How can a man be justified before God? What a great question. How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot 
and the Son of Man who is over. One of the chief characteristics of maggots is that they live on dead things, mm. impure things, filthy things. And I think that's what both David and Job are getting at, that in comparison to the high holiness of God, the righteousness of God who deserves the praises of Israel, in comparison, men are just worms. I mean, when we see maggots, our immediate revulsion causes us to want to get rid of them, kill them, bleach them, do something, get rid of them. Same idea, that comparison between humans and maggots. Imagine that comparison between God, the righteous, holy God, and human beings in their sinful estate and in their depravity. Both Job and David compare it to being a worm and not even a man. But then he uses this phrase, I am a reproach of men and despised by the people and all who see me sneer at me. Okay, now that did not happen necessarily to David. There were a few circumstances where David, like when he pretended to be insane, there were a few moments where maybe you could say that applies to David. But it very directly applies to Christ. All who see me sneer at me, they separate with their lip and they wag their head and they say, commit yourself to the Lord let him deliver him, let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Now we can go back to Matthew 27 for a moment, and what you're going to find is they said that exact thing. At the cross, as Jesus was dying, not only did they sneer at him, not only did they ridicule him, but they mocked him using these exact words, which is just astounding. I mean, if you want to talk about the sovereignty of God... David was king in Israel around 1,000 B.C., 1,000 years before Christ. And he included details about the death of Christ, including what the unbelievers were going to say in their reaction to the death of Christ, that rather than be sympathetic or empathetic, they continued to ridicule and mock him. So go to Matthew 27 again. And this time we're going to start reading at verse 35. Oh, 33, we'll start reading there. When they had come to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink mingled with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink it. That's because the gall that was left out by the crosses was used as an anesthetic to help people on the crosses deal with the pain of having nails driven through their wrists and through their feet. And as they would agonize and as they would choke to death in their inability to raise themselves up and get a breath, they would feed them gall in order to anesthetize them. Jesus, once he realized that that's what it was after tasting it and realizing that that would lessen the pain that he was going through, refused to take it because he took on the full wrath of God. He drank that cup dry. They gave him wine to drink mingled with gall. After tasting it, he was unwilling to drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots and sitting down. They began to keep watch over him there. Keep your finger right there in Matthew, because later here in Psalm 22, 
verse 18, David writes, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. How did David know that a thousand years in advance? That's such a specific little detail. Do you know why they cast lots? It was because the robe that he had was a seamless robe, which means that it was woven throughout without any seams, which made it a valuable robe. And so when the soldiers looked at it, they said, well, let's not tear this apart and each get an equal piece of it. Instead, let's just cast lots, and whoever the winner is is going to go home with this fancy new robe. How would David know that? It is confirmed here in Matthew that that exact thing happened, and I really want to drive home and emphasize this one more time. These are not believers. These are not people who are trying to accomplish the word of God. These are not people who are trying to fulfill prophetic psalms. Instead, these were people who, by their own supposed free will, were doing exactly what they wanted to do, and exactly what they wanted to do was exactly what David said they were going to do a thousand years in advance. So was there any chance that they were going to say, oh, let's not cast lots? Let's tear up the robe and divide up the fabric. And weren't they Romans? Weren't they Romans? They were. Yeah, they were so Roman guards. They have no idea of yeah. David's saying. Right. Because they're Gentiles. Exactly. So. They're centurions just doing what they wanted to do. And yet doing exactly what God said they were going to do. So one of two things is true. Either God is completely sovereign, not only over his people and his elect, but also completely sovereign over absolutely everybody on the planet, which is why he could say, even like to Cyrus, though you have not known me, I've anointed you, because God had a plan for him, but he didn't know God. Same thing here. These centurions did not know God, and yet they fully accomplished exactly what the prophecy said about Jesus. They didn't have any other choice. Or, option number two, God just got really lucky. I mean, it just worked out good for God. When they did that, he went, whew, wow, that was close. That is so good. When they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And they put up above his head the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. It's exactly what David said they would do. Wag their heads at him. And they were saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down off that cross. And in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we shall believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers also who had been crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. So you've got the chief priests 
You've got the leaders from Israel. You've got the centurions. You've got the robbers who were crucified next to him. And they're all doing exactly what David said they were going to do. Here's the way David put it. All who see me will sneer at me. They will separate the lip. They wag their head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. That's exactly what we read out of Matthew. David is describing such minute details that there's no way after the natural course of things through natural selection and Darwinianism. There's just no way to explain the fact that he could talk about such little details and actually have them happen a thousand years later in connection with the death of the Jewish Messiah. There's no way that can happen through any natural explanation. It yet again proves, it yet again demonstrates the sovereignty of God over everyone and everything. Verse 9, Psalm 22. Yet, despite all that, despite the fact that they're sneering at me and they're mocking me, wagging their heads and mocking God by saying he believed in God. If God wants him so bad, let God deliver him. Despite all that, verse 10 says, and upon thee I was cast from birth. Thou hast been my God from my mother's womb. I think we all know the story of Gabriel coming to Mary and saying, the Holy One that is going to be born to you is going to be a result of the Holy Spirit being on you. From the very moment that he was cast into his mother's womb, God, Yahweh, was always his father. He was always the Son of God from the moment he appeared in the womb And, of course, all of us would argue he is the Son of God from all eternity. But in terms of earthly history, from the moment he entered the womb of a little Jewish virgin, all the way through to the cross, all the way through to his death and burial, all the way through to his ascension, all of that is the result of the fact that he is the Son of God from beginning to end. And that seems to be what David is getting at here. Upon thee I was cast from birth. Thou hast been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. And that is true. Even the Jewish leaders said he saved other people. He can't save himself. Which, by the way, was essentially theologically true. What would have happened to Micah if Jesus chose to get off the cross? Because he could in the Garden of Gethsemane when he told Peter to put up his sword. He says, don't you think my father would send me legions of angels if I asked? You don't have to fight for me. I can defend myself. But Jesus turned over his will to his father's will, and therefore he was willing to embrace the agony of the cross because of the glory that was set before him afterward. But what if he had said, I'm not going to do the cross thing? Well, then what hope do any of us have? What hope would any of us have of salvation, redemption, eternity, if he got off the cross? So actually, the Jewish leaders who said he saved others, he can't save himself, that was true. He really couldn't save himself. 
If he did, we're all hopeless. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Several different animals are going to be referred to here. It's just David's poetic way of saying, I'm, I'm surrounded by those who want to kill me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Now, clearly, David is not talking about himself here. All my bones are out of joint. By the way, remember again that I mentioned that David is writing around 1000 BC. The earliest historic record of crucifixion dates to 519 BC, 500 years after David so accurately describes crucifixion. Crucifixion finally comes on the stage of history. David had no reference point for what he was writing here. As he perfectly describes the details of the crucifixion of Christ, he has no reference point for it. Crucifixion doesn't exist. So the earliest historical record of crucifixion goes back to 519 BC and the Persians. And it was actually King Darius of the Medo-Persian kingdom who crucified 3,000 of his political enemies outside of Babylon. That's the first historical record we have of crucifixion, but that form of crucifixion was sort of similar. The Assyrians were well known for impaling people. In other words, they would create sharp spikes in the ground and then impale people physically on those sharp spikes. The Persians decided to improve on that and make the agony last longer by tying people to poles or sometimes to cross beams, or even to trees, and let them just suffer there with their hands above them in such a way that they would suffocate, and that they would be exposed to the elements, to the wild animals, to the carrion birds, and so their death would be elongated and painful. And then the Romans came along, and by the way, the Greeks also, and the Carthaginians also used crucifixion, but it was that tying people up type of crucifixion. So the Romans came along and said, I think we can improve on that. Instead of tying people to these poles or crosses, how about we nail them to it? And that will increase the pain, but they'll also die quicker, but it'll be more satisfying to our bloodlust to nail people to crosses. Okay, now the point is, when Jesus was crucified, he actually experienced something that David wrote about in detail that David had never seen or experienced and didn't even occur in human history for another 500 years. It's remarkably prophetic. So David writes, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and thou dost lay me in the dust of death. One of the things that Jesus said from the cross is, I thirst. That satisfies David saying, my tongue cleaves to my jaw, because he was so 
parched, so dried after the beating, after the blood loss, being out there in the sun, hanging on that cross, the nails driven through him. And how would David know this? How, how would David know such intimate details? Verse 16, he returns to this use of animal figures to describe the enemies that have surrounded him. For dogs have surrounded me. By the way, the Jews used to refer to Gentiles as dogs. So part of it is Gentiles have surrounded me. The Gentiles are taking responsibility for this crucifixion and for what's happening to me. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. And they look at me and they stare at me. If you would, Micah, go to Luke 23. And I'm going to have you read from verse 33 to verse 38. But for the rest of us, let's go to the book of Zechariah for a moment. Because what David is doing here in saying, they pierced my hands and my feet, is not just prophetic, it's actually eschatological. So find Zechariah, and we're going to Zechariah 12. Zechariah has a lot to say about the return of Christ. We're going to start reading at chapter 12, verse 10. God speaking says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn over him as one mourns over his only son. And they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And in that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. So God is going to pour out the spirit of grace and the spirit of supplication on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that when Christ returns and his feet touch the Mount of Olives, when they see him returning, they're going to go into this great national mourning as they look on the one who they realize they are responsible for piercing. Okay, none of that had happened yet. And yet Zechariah said that the chief characteristic that they're going to recognize him by is the fact that he is the one they pierced. It's very much like Thomas saying, I won't believe until I can put my fingers in the holes in his hands and in his side. And Jesus shows up and says, touch me. Jesus is proving he is the one who was pierced. So that satisfies the prophecy of David, who says that they're going to pierce him. But that piercing is then picked up by Zechariah and says that it is the identification of the one who is the Messiah, who they reject when he does come. Remember Zacharias talking several hundred years in advance. When he does come, they're going to reject him. They're going to pierce him. And then he's going to come back later. And God, by giving Israel the spirit of supplication and this spirit of mourning and understanding, through this spirit of grace that comes from God, they're going to recognize their own Messiah because he is the one who they pierced. 
So David is joining in with Zechariah prophetically to speak for something that is genuinely eschatological where it concerns Israel and God's faithfulness to Israel that he's going to pour out grace and supplication on them so that they recognize Christ when he returns. So there's a whole lot going on when David says, they pierced my hands and my feet and I can count all my bones and they look and they stare at me they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots this little phrase they look and they stare at me it would be easy to just pass over as if David was just saying something arbitrary and yet it becomes a hallmark of what happens to Jesus when he's hanging on the cross that the people do actually stare at him in, in wonderment, in disbelief, marveling at the pain that he's going through and the things that he's still saying about himself even though he's going through this kind of agony. So Micah is going to read Luke 23 verses 33 to 38 for us. Nice and loud if you would, Micah. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garment. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also marked, coming up, and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Yeah. Now notice that David compacted all those same details right here. Luke said, The people stood by watching. David said, They were all staring at me. In the same context, they divided up my garments. It's the same thing Luke said, right in league with that. And then, of course, all the mockery from the leaders of the Jews. So the details that David goes into, I know I keep overstressing this, but the details prove yet again that this book is a divine book. This is the very word of God because there's just no way through any natural explanation to explain why David would know these things. And we know historically that these things were written during the time of David. We know that Ezra verified them and collected them. And we know because these documents all existed prior to Jesus coming, prior to him being born, prior to him dying. So we know that prophetically these things are already on record before Jesus comes and all these things actually happen. And it would be, if I was going to be cynical, it would be easy for the apostles if they were, in fact, just trying to validate their story. It would be easy for them to say, well, Jesus did do these things. And yeah, well, he did say these things, just like the psalm said. Except that unbelievers are also doing it. Mm -hmm. Centurions are also doing it. So it's far beyond any human explanation to explain how it is that David could write these things so far in advance. Verse 19, Psalm 22. But thou, O Lord, be not far off. 
O thou my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword and my only life from the power of the dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen thou dost answer me. And then something astounding happens in verse 22. Up until now in this psalm, it's all been death and deliverance and please deliver me, prayers for deliverance, surrounded by dogs and bulls and lions and people mocking me and people casting lots for my clothing, so I'm just down to nothing. I'm leaving this planet with nothing. It's all just, it's death and horror all the way up until verse 22. And then suddenly there's this sort of cataclysmic shift where suddenly the very one who is dying, the very one who is praying for deliverance, the very one who is being mocked and crucified, it now says of him, I will tell of thy name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise thee. What just happened? What happened was resurrection. All the death stuff happened. All the crucifixion stuff happened. But then the very one who went through all of that is now announcing that he's going to go into the assembly of God. And he's going to tell of the name of God and declare God among his brethren. How does he do that if he's dead? Astounding that again, David would know that. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. By the way, if Yahweh can do something like this, like the crucifixion of his own son for the deliverance of his people, I think it's pretty good advice to praise him. Amen. <laughs> you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. And they're going to, according to Zechariah. They're going to stand in awe when they see him return. And they're going to weep over him because they're going to realize that they're the ones who pierced him. And so David says there is this time coming for Israel. This moment when all the descendants of Jacob are going to glorify him for what he has done in Christ Jesus. Stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Israel is going to go through so much affliction. Jesus Christ himself came to his own and his own received him not. They pierced him through. They drove him through. They nailed him to a chunk of wood. They buried him and they thought they were done with him. Jesus was more afflicted than any man on the planet. The only righteous holy one was turned over to the wrath of humans. Even though humans abhorred him, even though people didn't want anything to do with him, nevertheless, God did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. What's the evidence that that's true? He got up again. 
God clearly heard him even though during the affliction, during the crucifixion, it seemed like there was no one to help. Christ had to go through that by himself. Which is why the whole psalm starts with, why have you forsaken me? And yet the ultimate end of it is the glory of God in the fact that he did not abhor the afflicted, but instead delivered him and then raised him up and made him great. Verse 25, from you, from thee comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. And those who seek him will praise the Lord and let your heart live forever. Let your affections, let your concern for Israel live on forever. And then ultimately, all of a sudden, it gets all eschatological on us and says the very same thing we were talking about this past Sunday. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the Gentile nations. So if you follow the chronology of this psalm, it starts with the crucifixion of Christ, who had to go through that singularly and individually to the point where he would cry out, why have you forsaken me? And yet, despite going through that, God did not forget him. God did not abhor him or turn away from him. And so God delivered him, resurrected him, and then gave him a name that is above every name so that he ultimately is going to have the kingdom. And remember, by the way, this is David writing, who has the Davidic covenant. He's been promised that his greater son is going to sit on his throne ruling over all nations. And so even in this psalm, he incorporates that, that ultimately the same one who was crucified is the same one who's going to resurrect and praise God among the assembly, who is the same one who is going to rule over the Gentile nations. All as a result of God lifting him up after the crucifixion. And all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the families of the nations will worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. And all the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. And all those who go down into the dust will bow down before you, even he who cannot keep his own soul alive. Even those who are going to fall under the judgment of God are ultimately going to bend the knee to Christ. Does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Things above the earth, things on the earth, things below the earth. They're all going to admit that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's foreshadowed in what David is saying here. Even those who cannot keep their soul alive, even those who go down into the dust, will bow before him. The contrast is huge. The one they abhorred, the one that they mocked, the one that they wagged their head at, the one that they said, oh, if God wants him, God will deliver him off this cross. 
And so God is going to lift him up to such an extent that he is going to rule over the Gentiles and over Israel. And all of the people who ever mocked him are going to stand before him in judgment. And that judgment, that kingdom, that superiority of Christ is going to go on from generation to generation to generation. That's what verse 30 says. Posterity will serve him. In other words, the passing generations are going to continue to serve him and serve him. And it will be told of the Lord to the coming generations. Why? I I assume for just a moment. I assume that everybody in this room is a Christian person who has a good fundamental understanding of the Christian message. Is that generally true? Okay, is that specifically true? Yeah, we all have a good understanding. So why do any of us, though we know it individually, so we know it in ourselves, why do any of us tell other people? Why do we keep broadcasting these messages? Why do we keep going back over the same story? Why do we keep looking at it from all these various different aspects, but it's the same story? Why do we keep promoting it? Why do we raise our children in it? Because we're doing the very thing that David said here. Generation after generation, we're telling the story, passing it on to the next generations. Someday, some of us, I'm not saying any names, but someday, some of us aren't going to be here anymore. It's going to be up to the next generation to keep the story going. Because that's the way it works. Posterity will serve him, and it will be told of Yahweh to the coming generation. They will come, and they will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. David's point is, what you're going to pass on generation to generation, what you're going to tell your posterity is that you're going to declare the righteousness of God to the people who are going to be born, who aren't even here yet. You're going to continue to tell them the story, the story of Jesus on the cross, the story of Jesus' death, the story of his burial and his resurrection, the very fact that he was laid down with the wealthy in his death and then raised up again. We're going to tell the children about the rolling away of the stone and how Mary didn't recognize him. We're going to to keep telling the details of the story over and over and over again. And why do we do that? Do we keep telling that story because it's a good story? Good bedtime story? Okay, good night, kids. Going to tell you the story of Jesus again. Is that why we tell it? No, the reason that we tell it, according to what David wrote right here, is that we say, God has performed it. It was predicted a thousand years in advance. It was predicted by all the prophets through the course of those thousand years. And then the Messiah came to the planet and he actually did do miracles and he actually was hated by his own people and he actually was pierced and he actually was put in a grave and he actually was resurrected and he actually did ascend and he actually is coming back. And God did it. God did every single bit of it. That's why we tell the story. The purpose of telling the story is not so that we can aggrandize ourselves or say, 
wow, what a good preacher that guy was, or the reason we tell the story is for God's glory. The reason we tell the story over and over again, generation by generation, the reason we raise up our children in it, the reason that we tell people the story is because God did it. And we just keep glorifying God by repeating what he did, and that builds up the faith of the saints, hopefully by hearing that story again tonight through Psalm 22, your faith is built up yet again because you see the faithfulness of God to not only say what he's going to do way in advance, but then actually doing it. Therefore, you should have confidence that everything he has said to you, he's going to do because he has this long history of doing it. We tell the gospel because the gospel culminates in God did it. What a God we serve. What a God we serve. Next week, God willing, we will get to the most popular psalm in the entire book. We'll be at Psalm 23, and you can all just recite it by memory. Or you can read it off a postcard or a t-shirt or a lampshade or a poster somewhere. Or, but we'll look into the details of that next week. Questions? It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.